It's a beautiful, beautiful old hymn there, isn't it? Talking about the relationship of law and grace. Nowhere in there does it say that law saves us, does it? We're saved by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I did a lot of driving this past week. We drove down to Atlanta, and then from Atlanta went to Charlotte, and then yesterday from Charlotte back here. And when you drive in the Meadows van, what typically happens is I'm driving because I'm a kind of a have control issues, and so I won't let anybody else drive unless it's dangerous and I'm about to run off the road because I'm falling asleep. So I'm driving. And usually within five to ten minutes of me driving, one of two things happens. Either we have synchronized sleeping from the other five, and everybody's back like this, catching flies. Or the other thing that happens is a, um, the DVD player drops down, and we start watching a movie. Now, there's a lot of thinking that gets to go on in the captain's chair because I have to listen to a movie, and I've learned to tune most of the movies out because I hear them over and over and over and over again. But one thing I was thinking about this week as I was driving was that for the past 17 years, I've been caught in this black hole of animated movies, and I cannot get out of it, and I don't see any way out. I mean, it's, I don't know, I don't know how long Avery and Kendall are going to love these movies, but fortunately they're getting a little better than they were in the past, Kendall's happy about that. But it's just, if, if, if you want to talk movies, I may not know what you're talking about, but if it's an animated movie, I can tell you everything that's happened and, and what's going on and themes and lines and all that stuff. But here's what I was thinking about, is cartoons and, and animation just isn't the same as it was when I grew up. I don't, think, I don't think it's the same as you. There's nothing like Looney Tunes. Nothing like Looney Tunes, Right? Uh, we talk about violence, and Looney Tunes was probably the most violent thing I watched over and over, the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. There's nothing like the Jetsons, even though we're living in the Jetsons age. I grew up watching the Jetsons and thinking about how weird it would be to talk to somebody while I was looking at them, and they were miles and miles away, and now we pull out our phones and we FaceTime, right? Uh, there's nothing like uh, Tom and Jerry. Our kids love Tom and Jerry. I love watching it with them because it brings back memories, right? Pink Panther. You know, no words needed. The worst Pink Panther episodes were the ones where they made him talk, right? Where Pink Panther doesn't talk, man. Me and Braden have sat. I'm, I'm, I show Braden the Pink Panther, and we loved it. We would laugh and laugh and laugh, right? See if any of these ring a bell. Yeah, but have a do. What is that from? The Flintstones. All right. Here's a good line. I would have done it had it not been for those pesky kids. Scooby-Doo, good job, good job. All right, here's one you may or may not know. I don't know if, how many of you are going to know this one. Knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe, all right, who said that? Who, who, all right, yes, thank you. G.I. Joe with confidence from my man right there. Okay. Now, G.I. Joe ended every episode, you know, a, after all these things happened, you know, there were probably 8,348,000 gunfire shots have gone off in G.I. Joe and not one person got scratched which was always miraculous but the end of every G.I. Joe episode they had some kind of little moral teaching right and they would get to the end and they would go wow thanks whatever the guy's name you know the character was it wasn't Cobra um, but one of the characters said, wow thank you and he'd go knowing is half the battle you know and so I would listen and go yeah that's right but it taught me a valuable lesson you know what that lesson is that knowledge is important, right? There, there is value to knowing. 
There's value to knowledge. So every G.I. Joe ended knowing is half the battle. And that stuck with me for years, knowing is half the battle, right? So today we're going we're to turn to a passage of Scripture where we talk about the value of knowledge as it's related to the function of the law. The value of law, knowledge related to the function of the law. And I want to give you a setting to know why we're here. I know we've been in Romans for a long time, but I want to kind of let us kind of make a step back just for a moment to take a bird's eye view of where we're at because it's going to help us better understand this passage because if you just zero in on this passage, it can be a little confusing at first. So you know that we started Romans 1 and we went Romans 1 through 3 and the main theme of those chapters is Paul making a very compelling case about the fact that we are justifi justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Man is not justified by his own righteousness. We cannot earn our way to salvation. We don't merit salvation by who we are, by what nation we're born into, by anything on this earth, anything that we can achieve. Salvation is through Christ alone. So the first three chapters, he builds a very big, a very sound case on that and drives it home very clearly. In chapter 4, Paul says, okay, here's exhibit A. Here's exhibit A of justification by faith. It's Abraham. If you want the example, the exhibit of what we've been talking about is Abraham, the father of our faith, who was justified by faith. In Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. So he goes on to show how through Abraham we see that it's not by works that, that we make it to heaven, that we earn salvation, that we make ourselves right with God. It's through faith in Christ alone. We're justified by faith. Paul then moves on to Romans 5, and in the first 11 verses of Romans 5, he talks about the peace that we have with God as a result of justification by faith. And then in the next section of Romans 5, he talks about the life that is ours in Christ as a result of justification by faith, that we are given life through Christ, through faith alone. Now, as he's built this argument, you have to keep in mind who he's talking to. Think about the context of the people he's talking to. As he talks to Jews, their context is law, right? They're thinking law, 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 law. As a matter of fact, what, what was the reason they break the law? They disobey God and they're thrown into this time of wandering in the wilderness. They're punished, right? They break the law again and they're, they're, they're sent into uh, a time of, of, of punishment where other nations come in and they're brought and they send them into exile. Right? So, so the people understand this, this idea of obedience, this idea of living under the law. And in their minds, they're thinking, we can't disobey the law. If I disobey the law, bad things are going to happen. I'm going to live according to the law. Right? And so here comes Paul, and he's, he's preaching, and he's teaching, and expounding on what Jesus taught in his ministry. Right? And he's bringing out that you're justified by faith alone. You're not justified by the law. The law can't save you. And as he does that, you can imagine the questions that start coming. As he's teaching and he's preaching, he's writing, the people are going, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Back up. What, what purpose is the law? If you're saying I'm not justified by the law, then, then what purpose is it? I mean, should we just go on sinning? I mean, do we just, if grace is so great, then what, what purpose is the law? I'll just go and I can live however I want to and sin and grace will abound. And so Paul in Romans 6 has to go out and make a defense of grace. He says, listen, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking if, if, if you're justified by faith, if it's God's grace that saves, then you can just go on sin, don't worry about the law, and grace will abound. Is that what we should do? He asks in Romans 6.1, and what is his answer? Absolutely not. 
That is not it at all. He says that if you, have, if you have died to the law, you live for grace. You live in righteousness. You live for the Lord. Right? You're no longer enslaved to the law. Now you're a servant of the Most High God. Okay? And so then, what does he do in Romans 7? He just made a defense of grace. But Paul's a thinker. He understands. And God leads him to say, listen, not only is grace need a defense, but the law needs a defense. So he defends grace, but, but then the people are going, now, whoa, 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 wait, wait. So we're free, but we shouldn't live. So I don't understand the whole purpose of the law. Does that mean that if we need grace because of the law, and we need to be freed from the law, we need to be set free from, from the law, does that mean that the law is sinful because we're freed from sin? Is that what it means? That, so the people are thinking, and they're thinking, okay, does the sin equal law? Does law equal sin? And so Paul, again, asks a question in Romans 7 where he makes a defense of the law. And he says, is then law sin? And his answer that we'll look at today in in verse 7 is absolutely not. Absolutely not. See, the people are thinking they're in that context of law, 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 law. We have to understand context. Now I would ask you, just as a side note, what would be our context here? What might Paul write? If he were writing this here, I, I, I would venture to say that his context would be to write in chapter 6, do we need to go to church? See, in the Bible Belt, what have we often equated with salvation? Going to church. I go to church, I'm saved. I go down the aisle, I'm saved. Are you a Christian? I go to church. <laughs> Not what I asked you. I go to church. That's great. I'm glad you go to church. Are you a Christian, though? Are you a follower of Jesus? Well, wait, are you saying it's salvation through faith alone in Christ alone? I am. So I don't have to go to church to be saved? No, 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 no. By no means. We go to church. So I, I do have to go to church? Well, you go to church to grow in Christ. If it weren't for the church, I would never have heard the gospel. That's the context we're in. You see, this is Paul's context. This is what he's presenting to them. For us, going to church can be very legalistic, can be very law-based. And Paul looks at him and says, listen, the law is not sin, and we don't just flippantly live with no regard to the law either. So he's making a defense of grace in Romans 6 and a defense of the law in Romans 7 that we'll read about this morning. So open your Bibles. To Romans chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 7 through 12 this morning. Pastor Bill will continue us into verses 13 through the end of the chapter. I don't know, he probably won't cover that all next week, but he'll pick up there next week. Theologian A.W. Pink broke down chapter 7 in a way that I think is helpful. He broke it down to, to explain that the first six, chapter, or six verses of chapter 7 expresses our standing in Christ, our standing in relation to the law, okay, that, that we have been released from the law, it says in verse 6, okay? we have died to the law through the body of Christ, it says in verse 4, so that's our standing in Christ, and then he says, or verse 7 through the end of chapter 7, expresses the state of being a believer in that relation, as we stand in that, here is our life experience, and so what Paul's going to do in the, the, the verses that we're looking at this morning, is he's going to explain, this is my experience there that is, 
the same as your experience before I came to Christ. And then starting in verse 13 as he goes on, he's going to say, this is my experience as a believer, wrestling with the law, battling the law, fighting the law and deeds and deeds of the flesh and living in the spirit, okay? And so we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 this morning. Let's read these together. Paul writes, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In the time we have remaining, this is what I want to do. I want us first just to walk through these verses and just, just discuss them, talk about them, so we have a good understanding of what Paul's saying. And then once we do that, I want us to, to ask a question, what does it mean for the, for the law to, to make us know our sin? How, how does the law help us to become knowledgeable of our sin? How does it make us know our sin? And then finally, in light of that, what is our response? What is our response? If the knowledge of our sin comes through the law, then what is our response to that? What response is needed? So let's walk through the verses and look at them, and then we'll get into and, and wrap up with a, couple, uh, a few questions and our response. So Paul begins in verse 7. That should look familiar. There's a familiar pattern he begins with. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Do you see the echo of of chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. So in both instances, Paul, Paul presents a question. There's an emphatic response and then an explanation. Right? And that's what he does here. He begins with a question. Is the law sin? His answer is absolutely not. And then he goes on to explain what he means. Why the law is not sin. So in verse 7. What does he say there? If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law gives us a knowledge of our sin. It's what Pastor Ricky read from Galatians 3 a few, a few minutes ago. That the law is our tutor or our pedagogue. It's our guardian. Uh, a pedagogue, the word used there, uh, referred to a harsh disciplinarian, a taskmaster who sought to protect and train. So, so the law is our tutor until Christ. Right? And, and there in Galatians 3.24, it says that the law has become our tutor so that we might be justified by faith. It hasn't become our tutor to teach us to be better law abiders so that we can earn our salvation. Paul writes in Galatians 3 that the law becomes our tutor so that we might be justified by faith in Christ alone. The law is not continuing to mold us and to shape us into better and cleaner and prettier and tidier believers. The law is making us know, it's teaching us of our sin so that we might turn to Christ and trust Him. 
The law is our tutor to reveal our need for Christ. Luther wrote this. He said, with its whippings, the law draws us to Christ. That's a pleasant thought about the law, right? That the law whips us, kind of whips us into shape. It's whippings. The law draws us to Christ, shows us our need for salvation. Timothy George wrote this. He says, in a proper sense, the law does lead us to Christ, not by weaning us from our sins, but rather revealing them clearly and even causing them to be multiplied and increased to the point where we stand before God utterly void of any hope of self-reclamation. The law does not save. It doesn't save. And what we find out is when we try to live according to the law, and we try to obey everything, what do we find out? We can't do it. We cannot do it. And, and that's, what, that's what Paul writes here. If, if it had not been the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known sin. And then he goes on to describe, and in verses 8, he starts to, he says, for I, and what he's doing here, he says, listen, here's an example. Here's what I want you to understand. Here is, here is my pre-conversion experience. Here is my experience before Christ. Here's what I want you to know, that I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. If the law hadn't revealed that to me, I would not have known that, Paul says. And it's the same for us. The law reveals our inability. This is an interesting thing. That the, the world, what does the world tell us? Find out what's moral, figure that out, find out what's the good thing to do, and do it, and we'll all be good. The, the problem with that is what? When we find out what we should do, what we ought to do, there, there's something inside of us that's like, what happens if I don't do it? I, I don't want to do that. Maybe we do it, maybe we don't. At some point, we kind of test the waters and, and we step out and we don't do it. We realize that, you know what, there's something in me that wants to rebel. There's something in me that stands against. We can't be moral enough, right? We find that out. As the law comes, as we find what we ought to do and what we should do, we find that we, we don't do it. We fall short because we're not good law abiders. I mean, just think about his example here. Coveting. Did the law not teach you what it was to covet? I mean, before you hear the law where, where God says, thou shalt not covet, before that, what do you do? You just go around living, wanting whatever you want. Oh, he's got that, I want that. They've got that, I want that. I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. Right? And we want that, I, I want that, I'm not content. I don't want this, I want that. And so I covet after. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Paul brings this about because it is, deals with the heart. This is the example he uses of all the law because it deals with our heart. We want something instead of what God has provided. Now the law comes and reveals to us what? Wow, maybe, maybe I, I shouldn't just want all those things. In fact, when I live my life wanting what others want instead of content with what Christ has given me, it's a, it's a sign, it's showing that I am not content in Christ. That I'm not trusting His provisions. I'm not trusting His goodness and His care and His wisdom. Instead, I'm trying to take things into my own hands and I'm trying to get what I want. I want that, I want that, I want that. Right? The law reveals that to us. It shows us that it is simple. Move on to verse 8. Verse 8. And we see 
sin's manipulation of the good law of God. Hear, hear these verses again and think about how it talks about sin manipulating the law. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin manipulates the law. Look at verse 8 here. The, the word opportunity. It, it, it was... It's a, it's a word used to describe a, a military base, a, the starting point for operations, right? So it says sin seizing an opportunity. It says that again in verse 10. Sin seizing, or sorry, verse 11. Sin seizing an opportunity. The law is a springboard for the advance of sin, right? It's, it's kind of like when you, you put a wet paint sign up. You, you want to touch it. I did that with the youth one night. I can't remember what we were doing, why I did it, but I put some wet paint signs on the black columns back there, and I just sat back in the sound booth and watched, and they would go and touch it. And it was great. It was a great, great experiment. We want to do that, right? Why? Because when the law's there, sin kind of draws us to that forbidden fruit. It, it gives us that, well... I, 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 want, I want to do that. Now, the law is not sinful. We just read that in our scripture reading, right? The response of reading, Psalm 19, talks about the, the law being perfect and, and how we delight in it, revives the soul, all these good characteristics, good things about the law. The law is not sinful, right? Paul even concludes in verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not sinful. He said in verse 7, by no means. Is it sinful? No, absolutely not. But sin seizes that Sin uses the law as a vehicle, as an occasion, as a tool to accomplish its deathly purpose. So seizing the opportunity, sin comes. And what does it do? What activity is sin involved in? Look at verse 8 again. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, what does it do? Produces, produced, Paul's words, in me, all kinds of covetousness. Do you see anything interesting here? We think of just the coveting, right? The action. But there's more depth here than that, isn't there? What produces that sinful action? Look at your text. You can answer too. It's allowed. What produces that sinful action of coveting? Sin. Sin produces sinful action. Sin produces coveting. What is he talking about? He's talking about the sin as a whole that resides in my heart and in your heart. He's talking about our sin nature. We covet because of the sin that resides within us. We lie because of the sin that re resides within us. We look lustfully because of the sin that lies within us. We manufacture idols because of the sin that lies within us. There's brokenness in our relationships because of the sin that lies within us. That root of sin 
springs forth with sinful actions. Now, verse 8, he says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that, that sin didn't exist. It simply means that it lays inactive. It's dormant. If, if there's any Tolkien fans out there, right, that you like The Hobbit, it's like Smog the Dragon. When they go in, and they go in with all the gold, and the dragon's laying there dormant, sleeping, slumbering. But then he's awakened, and he's intent on destroying. Sin is like that sleeping dragon. But it says in verse 9 that what? Sin sprang to life. It sprang to life. Verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law. When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It sprang to life and I died. It was that sleeping dog for you runners out there. That's peaceful and quiet and cute. And you run by and he likes to look through your calves. And he goes ballistic, and then all of a sudden he's snarling, he's sprung to life, and he's coming after you. That's sin. It sprang to life. It came to life. And then what? I die. Think about this. When did Israel, when did God's people build its first idol? When did they manufacture their first idol? When they came out of Egypt. What was told of them before that? So they made their first idol in Exodus 32, I believe it was. What happened in Exodus 20? The giving of what? The giving of the law, which had the commandment to what? Don't make an idol, right? There, look back and you kind of chuckle and go, you just said don't make an idol. And they are like, hey, I got an idea. Let's make an idol. <laughs> you know? But then you go, wow, I shouldn't laugh because I kind of tend to do the same thing. God has all these things for me. He's written them. I have one in my pocket. I have a Bible in my pocket. I have Bible sitting around my house. I have multiple copies back there. I have it on t-shirts. I have it on my wristband. I have God's word everywhere. And here I am making idols. Maybe I'm not so different from the Israelites after all. They produced their first idol after God said no. Why? Because sin used the law took that advantage, seized that opportunity to lead them to act sinfully, to rebel against God. Now, Paul shares something very vulnerable with us here. I, I, love, I love how God led Paul to be transparent and vulnerable with us in Romans 7. Absolutely love it. What does he say? Look at, look at Paul's experience, his understanding of his spiritual condition. Verses 9 through 11. He says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So what Paul's saying is, I, I, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I, I once thought, that there was life in the law. But sin came and abused the law in my life. And I died. 
I, I thought that, that life could be attained through obeying the law. And I, I saw through the word of God that I was actually dead. I am not alive. I thought I was living. I was religious. I was doing the right things. I was zealous. I was persecuting people in the name of God. And I thought I was alive. But then the law came. God's word opened my eyes to my inability to live according to the law. And I realized that I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I was dead. I could not obey the law. I could not obey the law. What I thought was life proved to be death because it was unattainable for me. I thought it was life, but it's not. See, isn't that true of us? Obedience seems obtainable. It seems like we can do the right things. Some of you right now think you can do the right things. You can say the right things. You can wear the right things. You can learn the right things. You can come to church enough times. All those things, you think you can do it. And guess what? You can't. You can't. If you think you can, I'm here today to tell you, you cannot. You are unable to do it. You're unable to do it. Some of you have sinned pridefully right there by me me saying you can't do it. You're like, yeah, I can. You can't do it. Christ can. Christ can. And Paul says, listen, I thought I was alive, but I was dead. I was dead. And he comes to his conclusion. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. His conclusion, verse 12. Knowing all this, looking back, seeing what he had done, seeing how he had tried to live according to the law, how he had tried to be the perfect Jew, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He had the pedigree, and looking back and seeing that he was incapable, he couldn't do it. Why? Because what we read in Psalm 19 The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God, by His grace, opened Paul's eyes to see. I can't do it. I need Christ. See, that's that's the prayer today. That that God would reveal the holy purity of His Word and enlighten our eyes that we would see our need for Him and His great love for us. And I, I think that's it. For, for, for some of you sitting in here today, that, that's what needs to happen. Like for the first time, you need to be confronted with the fact that I can't fill in the blank. I can't. I need Christ. I need help. I am, unca- I am incapable of doing it. I need help. And I sit here hearing of the one who can Jesus Christ who loves me and who died for me and who rose victoriously from the grave he can and you need him you need him listen I I was so grateful that Jeff said what he said in that little musical interlude because we got to that verse and I was thinking man what a what an awesome awesome moment that's going to be when we stand before God and we are transfixed upon His face. <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> Have you thought about that? Like, Christ comes again. He comes in power. He comes in victory. And we see Him. We're not going to be fist bumping Him. We're not going to be going, hey, check it out. 
I think we're going to be going... But there's some in this room that aren't going to be doing that. Some in this room can't sing that. That I'm going to be transfixed on his face because of the great awe and love and wonder of my Savior coming again. There's some of you that can't do that. You won't do that. Because in that moment, it is going to be a holy terror. When... The one that you've denied and pushed aside and put off for years and years of your life comes again and you stand before him and it's too late. I, I tried to obtain the law. I thought I was alive. I was going to church. You're dead, Jack. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Behold His wondering grace. Stand with awe and love as you behold His face. So, question. We wrap up. How does the law make us knowledgeable of sin? How does the law make us knowledgeable of sin? Here's four quick things. Four quick things. First, verse 7, the law defines God's standard. The law defines God's standard. Paul says, I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. God, God's law reveals God's standard. It reveals what's right and wrong. It reveals, it reveals his character. It reveals who he is, what he values of his people, what he's called us to as his people. It shows us right and wrong. It shows us what his standards are. It calls us to not live according to the world's standards, not to live according to the Bible Belt standards, but to live according to the standards of God's holy word. Okay, So through the law, we see that. We learn that. We learn who God is, what he expects, that we might live for his glory. Second thing, what does it mean, what is the, or how does the law make us knowledgeable of sin? Second thing is it reveals our sinful actions. It reveals our sinful actions. It shows us that the things we do are truly sinful. So the times that we've lied, that we've taken God's name in vain, we've dishonored our parents, we've looked lustfully at another, we've had outbursts of anger, those are not just mistakes, slips up, slip ups, oops, my bad. No, those are times of rebellion and transgression and sin against God. You see, I, would hesitate, I wouldn't hesitate to say that most of you, if not all of you in here, know You've heard that law. You've heard those standards. And you know that God has not called us to live in those ways. So it's not just, oops, my bad. It's, I have rebelled against God. And God's law reveals our sinful actions, reveals those actions to be sinful, to be transgressions. Here's the third thing it does. Is that the law reveals our sinful nature, which drives our sinful deeds. Verse 8, we talked about the sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what the law does, it jerks away the blanket of our false morality. We think we're fine and we're huddled up and it jerks it away, leaving us naked and cold and ashamed of our false morality. It exposes our sinful nature that produces just deeds of the flesh. This man, those things you've done have been wretched and wrong and sinful. Listen, 
one of the best things that can happen to us as a church is that we come to grips with our own sin, that, that God uses his word to reveal our sin, not our, just our sinful actions, but our sin, our sinful nature, that God would use his word and open our eyes to see our sinfulness. You want to you see your marriage grow? You want to see your marriage be healed? Then stop looking at the sins of everybody else in your home your spouse particularly, and start looking at your own sins. If you want healing to come, ask God to open your eyes to your sin and start there. If you want healing to come in your family relationships outside of your home, ask God to reveal your own sin. We need to see that. You want to see God heal our land, then how about us humbling ourselves first? God, reveal our sin to us, and let's quit tossing stones and talking about how bad that is and how bad this is. Let's look and say, man, God, show me my own sinfulness. Reveal to me where I am sinful. Show me my sin. There's a fourth thing. The law reveals our own true spiritual state or condition. The law reveals our spiritual state or condition. When Paul said that the commandment that was thought to bring life brought death, you know why he said that? Because in Leviticus 18.5, it talks about that the one who obeys the law shall live. God, God said, listen, if you obey my law, you obey it. You'll live. You'll be blessed. You'll live a blessed life. Here's the problem. We can't do it. We, we, we can't do it. In John 5, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he, he says, you, you search the scriptures to find life in them. You're, you're looking in the scriptures and you're looking to find life because you think life is in knowing the word. Guess what? It's not. The scriptures all point to me and in me is life. In Christ is life. See, the law reveals the peril of death of trying to earn salvation. We want to earn our salvation. We by, by nature, we want to do those things, and we can't. And the law helps us to see that. You may be here thinking you're alive by doing stuff, but you're not. You're dead. You're dead, and you need Christ. You need Christ. So how do we respond? How do we respond? Let's get back to G.I. Joe. What did G.I. Joe say? What was his advice? What was his tag ending? What did he say? Knowing is half the battle. Knowledge is important. Knowledge is important, but it's how much of the battle? Half the battle. Half the battle. We, we have to understand that. We have to know that we have to do something with the knowledge that we've been given. We, you have been given a great amount of knowledge, Grace Baptist. You've heard the word preached. You've heard the law proclaimed. You've heard the gospel proclaimed, that, that you can't justify yourself. You can't meet God's standards. It's through God's grace alone. So what are you going to do with it? So believers, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the knowledge you've been given? Listen, I would appeal to you, you've got to mortify sin. You've got to kill sin. You've got to put sin to death. Take drastic measures if necessary. Get rid of your phone if you need to get rid of your phone. Put your computer in the living room. Stop talking to that person. Go swallow your pride and apologize. 
Go confess sin to someone. Change jobs. Do what is necessary to live for Him and to mortify sin, to kill sin. Invite people into your life to hold you accountable. Invite someone and say, hey, listen, here's the sin I'm battling, the sin I'm struggling with. God has shown me that. I need your help. Walk with me. Hold me accountable. Do the hard work of fighting sin. Enter the battle. Get your hands dirty for the glory of God. Kill sin, believers. When God's word reveals it in your life, don't just be content to go, eh, (laughs) I struggle with that. Really? That's it? I struggle with that. Almost like it's a badge. I struggle with that. How about some brokenness? And God, break me over my sin. God, when I see my sin, I want to be broken. I don't want to be repentant. I want to come to you and confess to you. And I want to do the hard work of killing that sin by your grace and for your glory. And I want to live for your name. And I want to make your name known. Unbelievers, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. I find it interesting how many people choose ignorance sometimes in life. Sometimes we see that with our kids. We choose to be ignorant of something because we don't want to face the facts of something that's going on in our family. Don't do it. Unbelievers, you hear God's law and you are awakened to the fact that you are sinful. Don't choose ignorance. The old saying, ignorance is bliss, is definitely not blessed. Don't choose to be ignorant. Don't choose to deny him. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Here's 2 Corinthians 3.14 where where God says that the minds of his people were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Why? Because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ is it taken away. Listen, unbelievers, turn to Christ today. Turn to Christ. Trust him. Stop trying to do it. You can't. Stop trying to obey fully. You can't. Paul Paul said, when the word opened my eyes, he lifted the darkness and showed that I was spiritually dead. And then I lived. Then I lived. Why? Remember? Romans 5. There's life in Christ. Through the one man brought life to the many. Life in Christ. Hear these words as we close. From Isaac Watts in his hymn, Lord, how secure my conscience was. Watts wrote, Lord, how secure my conscience was and felt no inward dread. I was alive without the law and thought my sins were dead. Watts was reading Romans 7, wasn't he? My hopes of heaven were firm and bright. But since the precept came with a convincing power and light, I find how vile I am. Thy gracious throne I bow beneath, Lord. Thou alone can save. O break the yoke of sin and death, and thus redeem the slave. Watts knew what Paul knew. 
We may think we're alive by trying to be obedient and religious, but we're dead. Life is in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we...